Father, we just ask that as we cover some of the most difficult material in in the entire Bible, uh, somehow may our time discussing the flood uh, strengthen our conviction that Jesus is a perfect reflection of your character. Amen. Well, you can see I entitled this here as we go through the flood, chapters 5 through 11, All Hell Breaks Loose. And um, 30 minutes ago, the title was From Bad to Worse, but somehow All Hell Breaks Loose seems a little better. Things just cascade from the beautiful picture of Eden and, of course, what happened at the tree, Adam and Eve cast out, and everything that happens just is downhill, downhill, uh, here culminating in the flood. Of course, it doesn't end there. Next time we'll talk about uh, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah. So these are very, very difficult um, stories. But we have to bring, anytime there's something uh, uh, positive here that we can say, uh, I think we should try to do that here in the book of Genesis. And unfortunately, we don't know more about Enoch. We have just this um, uh, two little verses here about Enoch who lived to be 365 years old. He spent his life in fellowship with God and then he disappeared because God took him away. And I was interested to see how other translations, most of you are probably familiar with Enoch walked with God or Enoch truly loved God or he was walking in close fellowship with God or Enoch walked in habitual fellowship with God. I like that one. And... So what I think is just interesting about this is uh, to consider what kind of a relationship did Enoch really have with God? What can we say based on this um, uh, brief passage here? Uh, The footnotes uh, to the Net Bible um, say, well, the word here would indicate that they really got along. Okay, so they appeared to be friends. And so um, if we read into Hebrews, we can read a little bit more about Enoch. By faith, and remember the word here can be translated trust also. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This is so similar to the passage we read last time about Abraham. Abraham trusted God and that pleased God. God, he was set right because he trusted God. Remember we said the whole issue here at the tree was a distorted picture of God, broken love and trust. And so when God has individuals where that trust, the relationship is restored again, uh, it would seem he tries to make a big deal out of that. And perhaps one of the reasons that um, Enoch was uh, translated was uh, God was trying to say something. Hey, there is a person who is in relationship, in friendship, he trusts me. And Enoch was uh, taken to heaven. Having pleased God could also be to gratify entirely. And the reason I underlined here that God was pleased with him before he'd even taken him up is, um, well, just to consider, uh, we sometimes state certain things about our relationship with God. And frequently, you know, we we tend to make, well, we just hope that um, He doesn't see us as we are. We want to be kind of somehow shielded from God. And so here we have these people all the way back in Old Testament times, before the cross, who are described as having this intimate relationship with God. Uh, Abraham was called God's friend. And we talked about Enoch. Moses spoke to God face to face just as someone speaks with a friend. All right, that's, uh, it's really possible with God. And about Job, uh, we're actually going to do the book of Job after Genesis because this book was written so early. But at the end of the book, God comes along 
and says to the three friends, you haven't been honest either with me or about me, not the way my friend Job has. And Job specifically referred to God as his friend in his argument with the three friends. And so Jesus comes along and says, hey, here's what I want. I don't want to call you servants any longer. We tend to be satisfied with a servant-master relationship with God, but that's not the ideal. I don't want to call you friends any longer, or servants any longer. Instead, I call you friends. Okay, incredible to consider the possibility that we can actually have a friendship with God. Um, and I say one of the hazards of purely incorporating a, a legal model as the end all for describing every way of understanding everything of importance is that it, it tends to de-emphasize um, the, the relationship, the, the friendship uh, that is so often described. Now, the marriage relationship is so dominant as a metaphor for understanding. And the Bible is we're reunited to God through a marriage. Okay, Intimacy. And so things that uh, are often said, uh, but what does it mean? If um, I've often heard people say, well, God is too holy to see me as I am. Or when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus. Well, this would have some implications. Uh, what would it imply? Well, would it would imply that uh, Jesus is uh, certainly somewhat more favorable towards us than the Father. Uh, but do we really want to split the Trinity up in that way? would also imply, uh, well, the Father isn't all-knowing. Yeah, he looks at you, doesn't really know much about you. He just sees Jesus. Okay, but this is where it is, I think, so radical to believe that Jesus was none other than fully God in human form. And what do we see Jesus doing? Hanging out with the riffraff of society. Fishermen, prostitutes. Remember how he was criticized, and that was God. Okay, having, uh, engaging, eating meals with these people. Okay, and that's what God wants. He wants to bring us back into that kind of relationship. There is no split in the Trinity. Father and Son, one in heart, mind, and character, and one in their desire uh, to be in this uh, relationship with us. And so the mission of Jesus is described in this way. Paul would say, all this is done by God, who through Christ, notice who, who changed by the life and death of Jesus, who changed us, changed our minds from enemies into his friends. Our message is that God was making all human beings his friends through Christ. Um, Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, scared to death of God, were certainly not his friend. They were, they were terrified. Okay, Jesus came to reveal what God is really like, to restore trust, to bring us uh, back into this friendship, uh, relationship with God. So, having said that, now we need to talk about the flood. Um, again, a, an extremely difficult story, especially if we're trying to build a whole model around everything being that Jesus is the perfect and full revelation of who God is. Do you read the story of the flood, and then your picture of God is the gentle one, the humble one, Jesus Christ? Okay, that can uh, create some tension there. And unfortunately, we have lots and lots of difficult stories to go through. I mean, look at these Old Testament. We'll, we'll come to Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife. The plagues and the firstborn. Okay, were those bad boys that died. We'll have to talk about Nadab and Abihu, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who were swallowed up by the earth. We'll read about Joshua and the sun standing still, not so that Joshua and the Israelites could evangelize the heathen, but so they'd have more time to kill them. 
Uh, we have difficult commands from God to wipe out entire villages, not just the fighting men, but the women and children. Okay, what do we do with those? Story of Achan. Well, some wouldn't have a problem with stoning Achan, but um, why did the women, the children, even the pets need to be stoned along with Achan? And we have uh, rules that would seem quite severe for uh, stoning Sabbath breakers and even gluttonous children. And we wonder about Uzzah reaching out to steady the ark. Was that uh, deserving of death? Um, how do we understand that? We have the 185,000 Assyrians, and then we have she-bears uh, chasing youths around when they taunted Elisha. So we have lots of challenging stories, and um, we're, we're not going to conclusively uh, answer all of these now in, in one big model. But we need to have some idea how we're going to approach all of these difficult stories. I think the disciples kind of hit, hint at the tension here. The night before Jesus died, you might recall they said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need. And kind of the implication is, um, hey, can we see that God of the Old Testament? You know, the one who did all those things. Can we see him, Jesus? And so Jesus' reply uh, may have come as quite a surprise. He answered, For a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? And when we get to the burning bush, um, I think at that time, uh, we'll, we'll try to make the case that the God of the Old Testament is the Son of God, uh, Jesus Christ. Not known by the name Jesus, of course, until he was born. Um, Jesus is God all the way through the Bible. So we are trying to reconcile what we see in Jesus with what we see in the Old Testament. Now, for many, this is not a conflict at all. Um, God is love, but... He's also just. And some see it as a two-sided coin. God is love, but He also has an infinite wrath that is the perfect counterpart to His love. Okay, um, We need to use the whole Bible to try to understand um, how to put all of this together. So let's go through some, maybe some principles, some principles of how to investigate stories like the flood. Okay, I think perhaps the first point would be that we take the whole Bible. We don't take one story. We don't take one book. We don't take just the New Testament. Uh, we really have to take the whole Bible because the whole Bible so often just rounds out and adds such incredible dimensions to difficult stories. Um, for example, how would you like to be known? Maybe you're uh, maybe an orthopedic surgeon. And on one occasion, you actually had to amputate a patient's leg to save the life of the patient. Uh, would you want that little snapshot? Uh, well, doctors, or this doctor, uh, amputates legs. Better stay away from that doctor. Um, wouldn't you want things to be, well, no, let's, let's explain the, the setting and the circumstance, and let's try to build a bigger picture of things than just that one incident that happened. Uh, I think most important of all would be to say, that Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is. And in fact, I think we can say that there is a hierarchy of truth in Scripture. It sounds wrong, it sounds bad to say that, but we have Jesus coming along. If you just read Matthew 5 and read on, he said over and over, well, you've heard it said, things like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and that's in the Old Testament. Uh, and if we believe Jesus is God of the Old Testament, he was the one who gave those rules, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus would come along and say, but now I tell you, don't do it that way anymore. Love your enemies. 
Okay, so Jesus comes along and would seem to try to bring a newer light, a better picture, uh, did away with some of the things that uh, we see in the Old Testament. So there is a hierarchy. If Jesus would come and say, no longer that way, now let's do it this way. Let's love our enemies. Let's pray for them. Okay, another very important thing would be to consider the time and culture. Um, we're really in trouble if we don't uh, do this. I mentioned two of the rules in the Old Testament. Should we still be uh, stoning Sabbath breakers and children who overeat? Um, well, I hope all of you would say no, but uh, we'll have to understand, well, why was there ever a time and a culture for such severe rules like that? Now, the thought might be, well, that's Old Testament. We don't have any dilemmas like that in the New, in the New Testament. But uh, then we have Paul saying it is a shameful thing for a woman to speak in church. Hey, is it a shameful thing for a woman to speak in church? I don't think so. Um, does this mean we uh, disagree with the Bible? Shouldn't we do what the Bible says? Well, I think we can take the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, understanding that God is meeting people in a time and a culture. Okay, And so we actually could disagree with words in Scripture and say, well, that was true perhaps for that time, but it doesn't apply to me now. Another, here's a long one, would be to prayerfully use all of the evidence available, apply reason and logic, pray for the Holy Spirit, ask questions. Very important, ask questions and be willing to change a cherished position based on new light. Um, and I have to say, as uh, you know, we've read the Bible here over the last several years, there have been a number of things that I see much differently than I did several years ago. And I think if we're not refining what we believe, then that would perhaps show that we're really not growing. Can we ask questions? Well, next time we'll talk about Abraham, who said to God about Sodom and Gomorrah, well, should not the judge of the earth do what is right? And then Abraham is declared to be a friend of God. Okay, no lightning bolt from heaven when Abraham said, well, God, shouldn't you do what is right? So it's, it's okay to ask reverently and to say, God, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why you would do this. But that begins the dialogue and the discussion and perhaps a, a better understanding. And the last point here, and I think a very important one, is that no one else should determine what you believe. You determine what you believe yourself. It is dangerous to rely on um, a pastor or even a theologian and say, well, I'm just I'm going along with what they tell me. Okay? Uh, truth is an individual thing. Okay? You need to determine for yourself what you believe. And what I'm going to discuss here about the flood are some, some ideas that I have. They might not be right. You have to, uh, you have to apply and use your own reason and uh, prayerfully decide what you believe about these things. And actually, I thought I'd include a few um, quotes since this is a Seventh-day Adventist institution. This last thought here is quite prevalent in, um, in some of the early people that were involved in this institution. So let me just quickly read some quotes of the most influential um, Adventist. There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of Scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. So we should go back and closely investigate um, everything. Can we say it better? Can we understand it better? 
Those who sincerely desire truth will not be reluctant to lay open their positions for investigation and criticism. We shouldn't be uh, defensive about this. And will not be annoyed if their opinions and ideas are crossed. We should be in a healthy dialogue and what we often do is very easily judge and condemn someone who suggests something that's different from how we've always believed it to be. There are today thousands of professors of religion who can give no other reason for points of faith which they hold other than that they were so instructed by their religious leaders. They pass by the Savior's teachings almost unnoticed and place implicit confidence in the words of the ministers. But are ministers infallible? How can we trust our souls to their guidance unless we know from God's word that they are light bearers? And these last two are really good. Every human being created in the image of God, what does that mean to be created in the image of God? Is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator. Individuality. Power to think and to do. The men in whom, and any time men is used here, it's in that time men and women, the men and women in whom this power is developed are the men and women who bear responsibilities, who are leaders in enterprise, who influence character. It is the work of true education to develop this power to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men and women strong to think and to act. Men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances. Men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and the courage of their convictions. One last one. All whom God has blessed with reasoning powers are to become intellectual Christians. They are not requested to believe without evidence. Therefore, Jesus has enjoined upon all to search the scriptures. Let the ingenious inquirer and the one who would know for himself what is truth exert his mental powers to search out the truth as it is in Jesus. Any neglect here is at the peril of the soul. We cannot trust the salvation of our souls to ministers, to idle traditions, to human authorities, or to pretensions. The Lord positively demands of every Christian an intelligent knowledge of the Scriptures. And, um, you know, the Bible, I've uh, I've said this so many times, but uh, there's just no book I'd want to read twice, or very few books I'd want to read twice. But every read through the Bible, it's like just going through layers. It gets deeper and deeper, and uh, truth... Uh, seems to become more clear. More things come together as we struggle with it. So now let's come back to the flood and let's try to uh, reconcile, if we can, the God of the flood with the God of Calvary. So we read in uh, Genesis 6, God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil. You can kind of tell when we read the Message Bible here. From morning to night, God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. And, uh, you know, there are some expressions here, not to dwell a long time on this, but uh, most translations say, God was sorry that he made people in the first place. Um, What does that mean? I think we need to understand here, you know, we're kind of uh, grappling with uh, describing here the emotions of God, but let's put it with uh, the rainbow, and maybe as a parallel. God would say, whenever I cover the sky with clouds and the rainbow appears, I will remember my promise to you and all the animals that a flood will never again destroy all living beings. Does that mean God was almost ready to send the flood many times, and then he saw the rainbow and he remembered, oh, that's right, I'm not going to do it. I'm almost sent a flood again, but then I saw the rainbow and I remembered. Um, No, these are descriptions. God was sorry. God remembered. Uh, Descriptions here trying to... uh, trying to describe here the thoughts and the emotions of God. But I like uh, here the, the emotions. It broke his heart. 
what was going on in the world. Well, let's ask a few questions first before we uh, try to get to the issue of the flood. How do you think God felt? Well, we just read that it broke his heart. But we could use other passages in Scripture, perhaps to describe how God felt. How about this one in Job? Good people are glad, and the innocent laugh when they see the wicked punished. Um, Is that our picture of God that we see in Jesus Christ? Well, of course, always be careful when you quote the book of Job. Because you remember God in the end said the three friends did not say of him what was right. Okay, these are not the words of Job. And I think we, we cannot read the Bible and come to this conclusion. All right? And just as a little bit of evidence here, it broke his heart in describing the flood. In Jeremiah, God would say, the people I love are doing evil things. Now, we don't tend to think of God, perhaps, or sometimes as loving people who are doing evil things, but here are people doing evil things and God loves them. I mean, certainly as a, as a parent, I could identify this. with your, If your child is doing horrible things, Um, You're horrified by what they're doing, but of course, that doesn't take your love away for your child. As the people go off into Babylonian captivity, I mean, you can hear the tears in God's words as He said, How can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? Okay, Uh, this is very traumatic for God to experience the loss of His children. And just a very clear one in Ezekiel 33. Tell them that as surely as I, the Sovereign Lord, and the living God, I do not enjoy seeing sinners die. I would rather see them stop sinning and live. Israel, stop the evil you are doing. Why do you want to die? So God was not uh, um, uh, pleased uh, here to send the flood. This was um, uh, broke his heart. That's the picture we need to have. So as we think about Jesus, you know, the disciples, I don't think they really uh, understood the Old Testament that well. Uh, At least it wouldn't seem like it. You know, they're not bothered by all those stories that I just mentioned. God opening up the earth and and the plagues and all that. They never asked Jesus any questions about that. It was not not difficult for them. That's fine. That was kind of, uh, that was their picture of God. And perhaps why they uh, asked Jesus, hey, can we see the Father? And so they would come along and say to this to Jesus. When the disciples, James and John, observed this, Jesus was rejected in a town. They said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Okay, notice Jesus' response. He turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know what sort of spirit you are. And of course, Jesus never killed anyone. Um, As Alden Thompson would say, the two violent miracles, figs and pigs. A fig tree and pigs going off of a cliff. Um, And we'll talk about the cleansing of the temple um, at some point. But um, anyway, so we, we try to reconcile with this. Maybe another question. Why so long building the boat? I mean, God could have built a boat, could have, um, all of a sudden, it's there, one day. Uh, Why have Noah build it and preach over such a long period of time? And uh, here I think we have to skip forward to Peter, who talks a lot about Noah. Peter would say, even though God waited patiently, notice, waited patiently, all the days that Noah built his ship, only a few were saved. And then he would go on in the the next book to say, The Lord is not slow to do what He has promised, as some think. Instead, He is patient with you, because He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants all to turn away from their sins. So God was working with these people, didn't want anyone to be lost, had Noah preach this message. And you know, we we don't actually read in Genesis that Noah did any preaching. Uh, That's from Peter, where we read about Noah who preached righteousness. 
Okay, so again, God was trying to work with that rebellious generation to try to get some people to get on the boat. Hey, but he wasn't successful. Well, just some questions to think about. What was the criteria for getting on the boat? Did you have to believe a certain number of doctrines? Um, it would appear you could have just got on the boat. Okay, and kind of related to that, was everyone that got on the boat good? No, we have Ham was on the boat, and even Noah, uh, soon after the flood, uh, got drunk. You'll remember the story. Um, so uh, it would appear anyone could have gotten on the boat. No one did. Okay, but it appears you could have gotten on the boat if you wanted to. And so these uh, descriptions here, I think, are very, very telling. This is the critical point, I think, for understanding the flood. Noah had no faults and was the only good man of his time. Is that an exaggeration? The only good man of his time? He lived in fellowship with God, just like Enoch. But everyone else was evil in God's sight, and violence had spread everywhere. Again, is this an exaggeration? Is there really only one good man on the planet? Well, it's repeated a few verses later. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with your whole family. I have found that you are the only one in the world who does what is right. And I think uh, we can make a pretty good case that this uh, it really describes the reality of things. That God really was down to one man. Because, um, well, if let's just say that there were a hundred good people who were in fellowship with God during the time of the flood. Do you think they would have got on the boat? Sure. Um, the fact that no one got on the boat would really suggest that God really was down to one man. God really did wait until the very last minute. He's down to one. And so if we just consider here, if there were a thousand good people, well, God could have had a whole fleet of uh, ships built. Okay, but he built a boat just big enough for the animals and one family. Now, what would this say? I think that... Um, we can think about it this way. Let's say that Noah really was the last man in a trusting relationship with God. And let's say that God didn't send the flood. And Noah dies. And now God has no one. He's totally lost contact with planet Earth. Uh, what do you think would happen to planet Earth? Um, God has not one. Uh, do, you think, uh, do you think there would have just been uh, self-destruction? Do you think things would have just fallen apart? Um, I think it would have gone into complete chaos. If God has no one, he's lost contact with the planet Earth, everything would have fallen apart, and um, the channel for the Messiah to come, would we have Jesus? Had God lost contact with the human race, uh, how would the Messiah arrive? In fact, would we be here today if God had not sent the flood? Uh, you really could look at it as the flood, rather than being seen as a mission of destruction, instead uh, maybe somewhat as a rescue mission. God's down to one, he hasn't built a boat, hasn't preached a message for a long period of time, and then God rescues him. He starts over with a new family, and then we have Abraham, and uh, eventually the Messiah. So you could see the, the flood as a rescue mission, God saving the last man to preserve the channel for the coming Messiah. And uh, that's, that's the, uh, the way that, um, that I've explained it for the last several years. Now, I want to give you one other option, though. Um, another interesting possibility. We read in Genesis 6.3 that the Lord said, I will not allow people to live forever. They are mortal. From now on, they will live no longer than 120 years. And how I'd always understood this is, um, well, 
you know, that is kind of the upper limit to people, you don't hear very often of people living longer than 120 years. Uh, but there's another way of reading this verse. If we take a more literal translation here, the New American Standard, God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, and it literally says, His days shall be 120 years. The okay, Bible translates it this way. My spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely, since they are mortal. They will remain for 120 years. And the reason I, I think this may be significant, uh, again from the Net Bible footnotes here, it literally says his days will be 120 years. And they say some interpret this to mean that the age expectancy of people from this point on would be 120. But neither the subsequent narrative nor the reality favors this. For example, how long did Noah live after the flood? 350 years. How long did Shem? And uh, 500 years they lived. Okay, so uh, if this is... What happened, it, it certainly didn't happen immediately. It is more likely that this refers to the time remaining between the announcement of judgment and the coming of the flood. And so when we look here at this verse, uh, Noah was 500 when he had his children. That's 6.1. And then in 6.3, my spirit will not remain in the people. They will remain for 120 years. And then Noah was 600 when the flood engulfed the earth. So it's quite reasonable to take the position that, yes, there was a 120-year period of time between the announcement of the flood and when it happened. And let's just look here at the people. Here we have Enoch, who was taken to heaven. His son Methuselah lived 969 years. And it's interesting, when you map out all the years and everything, he actually died the year of the flood. The name Methuselah means when he dies, it shall be sent. Died the year of the flood. Now, does that mean he was killed by the flood or perhaps died just before the flood came? His son Lamech only, in quotes, lived 777 years, which works out to be five years before the flood. And then, of course, we have Noah. And so um, one possible way of looking at the flood is to consider uh, the Spirit of God. Um, again, there, there is a, a family line here of Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, who were trusting, who were God's friends, it would appear. And here, uh, Methuselah dies, God is down to one. Now, what would happen when God's Spirit is literally withdrawn from the earth? We talk about this in Revelation, like the winds being held back. Is there something that happens when God is really no longer present on the earth? And so I put a quote here of at least how some have interpreted this. Many renowned Old Testament scholars argue that the flood was essentially an undoing of creation. And Greg Boyd here speaking, and thus arguing that the flood resulted by God withdrawing His preserving presence and allowing forces of chaos to uncreate the world, returning it to the state of tohu vabohu, which we talked about before. In this verse here in Hebrews 1.3, about Jesus who reflects the brightness of God's glory, is the exact likeness of God's own being, sustaining the universe with His powerful Word? Okay, are there bad things that happen when a world is completely cut off from its Maker, who sustains the universe? Okay, it's another possible way of looking at the flood. Now, the argument, of course, that most would have to this is, well, come on, this is clear. God Himself said, I will destroy them. How can you go against the clear words of Scripture like that? Well, we will get into this much more, but it's not quite that straightforward. And let me get, just give you a few examples. This would seem to be a very straightforward verse. 
2 Samuel 24, the Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Okay, we take that just as it reads. Well, there are two accounts of David giving the census. In the account written much earlier in Samuel, God was angry at Israel. He made David think, does God tempt to evil? Um, well, you can read this in any translation. That's, that's what it says. Now we read the account in Chronicles. Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. We have two dramatically different descriptions of the same event. And we see this again and again and again in the Bible, that God is frequently described as doing what he instead allows to occur. Uh, let me just give you a few more. There are many others. Here are David's words about Saul. David would say, By the living Lord, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul. Okay, notice the, the options that David thought of. How is God going to kill Saul? Either when his time comes to die a natural death, or when he dies in battle. And of course, how did Saul die? Fell on his sword, right? He committed suicide. And you read the next verse, after Paul committed suicide, and it says, So the Lord killed him. Or in the King James, thus God slew Saul. Okay, why did they describe it that way? Well, in the book of Job. Of course, you remember how the book of Job opens. And God said, okay, Satan, you can do it. And Satan went out and brought all this destruction on Job. Notice how it was interpreted. After the cattle and everything was killed, it's described the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now we know from reading a few verses earlier, God didn't send that fire. Okay, he allowed Satan to bring all of this upon Job. But, I mean, who else would send fire? It must be God. Here's a description about the destruction of Babylon. These are God's own words. I will fight against you. God speaking to Israel. I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in this city. People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. Now it's interesting, God first says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to kill you. And then we get this description of war and disease, starvation. And we just read on, it will be given over. Uh, the words here are so significant, given over, handed over, abandoned. Jesus' words dying on a cross, my God, my God, how have you given me over? Why have you given me over? Forsaken me. It will be given over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. Even though we just have the plain words here, God's going to fight against them, I will kill everyone living in this city. It's interesting to, to try to put these together. Now, we would think in something like the Ten Commandments, uh, we wouldn't have anything the slightest bit misleading in the Ten Commandments. Uh, but what do you make of this? Where God would say, I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. Um, so if you had something bad happen to you this week, was it because of something your great-great-grandfather did? Does God punish? Does God really punish? to the third and fourth generation. Um, it, it certainly says that. But we keep reading. Remember, we take the whole Bible, not just a verse here and a verse there. And we read on to Ezekiel, which would seem to say quite the opposite, where God would say, A son is not to suffer because of his father's sins, nor a father because of the sins of his son. Good people will be rewarded for doing good, and evil people will suffer for the evil they do. And... 
very telling here as we read on, turn away from all the evil you are doing and don't let your sin destroy you. Sin is inherently destructive. And um, so oftentimes we think of, well, the really bad thing about sin, it's not, it's not that bad, it's just that God doesn't like it. God will punish. Well, the really bad thing about sin is it does its own punishing. We see that so often in the Bible. And I think how to understand this, perhaps, does God punish to the third and fourth generation? Well, God is trying to meet these people where they are. And, um, you know, if, uh, if a father is an alcoholic and he beats his child every single night, is there a consequence to the third and fourth generation? Absolutely. And so, in a sense, I mean, it would seem God is threatening these people. He's using a language perhaps to reach them. But yes, there is a definite consequence, a punishment down to the third and fourth generation for the behavior of uh, terrible parents. So it does work that way. Perhaps not said very clearly, though. So, um, anyway, as we go through these difficult stories in the Old Testament, um, we're going to explore different uh, possibilities. Um, now, one other question I find interesting here is, um, couldn't Jesus have come during the time of the flood? Um, I mean, do you think he would have been crucified or whatever method they would have to put people to death in that time? Um, do you think that rebellious generation would have liked the picture of God that Jesus came to reveal? I mean, I think he definitely would have suffered the same fate. Why drag it out for thousands of years? Um, why not come sooner and just get everything settled? And I think there are probably several reasons. I think the experience of God dealing with his children throughout the entire difficult Old Testament period, it's very critical to our picture of God. Uh, there's one other interpretation I like, though. Um, it would appear, as, as I've said, I know at least two or three times here, that God finally had a group of rule keepers. I mean, really, the first time, who were doing so many good things. Nothing wrong on this list. Good things here, to read the Bible, to go to church, to pay tithe, um, to keep the law, and so on. And it would seem almost that God waited until he had a people who were at least keeping the rules. And of course, these people keeping the rules um, crucified him. I think really the cross is perhaps the strongest case uh, we can make against legalism as a means of salvation. Because there we see a rule-keeping people who hated the true God, true God. So we really we come back to Enoch again. It is about relationship, friendship, and uh, trust in God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you be with each one here, uh, as each one of us, and, and we should wrestle with these stories. Please bring conviction to each one of us. May your Holy Spirit of truth open our minds. And most of all, may we uh, really come to believe that you are just as good, just as gracious, just as loving as your Son. Amen.